In this episode of the Smart City Podcast, I interview technologist and creator Tim Rastel. I've broken this episode into two parts as we had so much to talk about. In this episode, part one, we talk about some of the exciting work that Tim has been doing and continues to do so. Tim now has his own consultancy practice, ISE Consulting, which focuses on Internet of Things, machine learning and mixed realities. Tim and I discuss a number of different technologies and the emerging uses of these, such as using audio technology for environmental research. We also discuss the pros and cons of New Zealand in the smart city space. Part two of Tim's episode will be the next episode out, and you'll hear the rest of our conversation about integrating across industry, government and academia, the importance of communication and some cool technologies that are emerging. As always, I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. It's the Smart City Podcast, whoa, with smart city experts, here we go. Connecting smart technology, both big and small. Smart cities are making life better for all. Big data, emerging trends, self-driving cars and more. The Smart City Podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Tim. How are you today? Hi, Zoe. I'm very well, thank you. It's a beautiful day in Wellington. Um, how are you doing? Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm doing very well also. And um, I'm sitting here in my office in Toowoomba. And yes, it's a beautiful day. So I'm really excited. Awesome. Well, let's just jump straight into these questions. And first one is, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you are passionate about? Sure. So um, I'm originally from the UK. Obviously, I'm in New Zealand uh, at the moment in Wellington. I've been here for ooh, 13 years now. Um, uh, my sort of uh, a certain chunk of my sort of working life was in in the UK. I studied engineering at university, and what they really taught me was that I didn't want to be an engineer. Um, and so I kind of uh, came out of that a bit disenchanted with that sort of that approach, and and kind of just fell into some work doing. Uh, network and IT infrastructure. Um, kind of quickly found that I had a kind of knack for getting to grips with that and understanding it um, and uh, sort of worked in and around central London in a variety of different sort of roles during that time and then eventually ended up moving to, to work at Heathrow Airport, uh, helping them to sort of build infrastructure and, and you know, as a, as a great sort of incubator for learning about how to do big projects and, and, and work in big corporates and so on and so forth and but within a team that was kind of isolated and had its own culture and so on. And so I, I got to learn a lot from that. And I came to New Zealand and that was just a holiday and uh, did a, a thing that a lot of expats from the UK do in New Zealand, which is they meet their partner and then they never go back. So, uh, and I found myself in New Zealand having to sort of readjust my expectations as to what I was going to do because there's just less of that big industry stuff that I was doing in the UK. And so I found myself working on a lot of little projects for a variety of different companies, um, almost always with a technology and IT sort of focus. Um, so everything from kind of rolling out fiber optic networks for one of the big telcos to uh, little custom projects for the film industry, doing all kinds of weird stuff. Um, and that sort of gave me quite a broad domain knowledge across a lot of areas. And I found that was the kind of thing that I was good at was not being a specialist in any one thing but just having a lot of understanding across quite a broad area um and then sort of really knowing then how to connect all those things so coming up with new ideas and new ways of putting stuff together um based upon those inputs 
Um, and then I, about three years ago, I found myself um, working for NEC, the big Japanese corporate who have a presence in, in um, New Zealand, uh, and someone threw a smart cities project at me. Um, and from that stage on, my life's been quite different. Uh, so in terms of passion, um, uh, I've always, I think the thing that I probably always go back to is, is that I just like making stuff, um, whether or not that's kind of cooking or building furniture or, uh, building teams. There's something about creation that just gets me up in the morning. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that boils down to sort of parenting as well. I've got a six, seven year old kid and he's, um, he's kind of a creation as well. Like what you put into children is, is, um, and you know, how you put your energy into them and, and, and how you nurture them and help them grow is probably the most rewarding thing you can do in your life, I think. Um, so that's one of my big passions. And apart from that is I've got a lot of tech passions. I'm really into VR and mixed reality and, uh, AI as well. I've got a, lot of interest in that space we've been paying a lot of attention to that and, and done a bit in, in practice robotics uh and building teams as well so uh yeah quite a, quite a lot there yeah it sounds like you've got a really broad um, range of things that are going on so let's talk a little bit about what kind of sparked your interest in the smart city space uh yeah well i mean it started with being given the opportunity to to work in the area um i'd sort of finished a bunch of work I was already doing with NEC and, and a new project came along. Um, and that was already just starting with my sort of co-founder in this, a guy called Tim Packer. Um, and so they, we're both called Tim. So that was sort of good in itself that just two Tims was the way we were referred to for quite a while. And so the two of us just started off looking at some opportunities that we had in smart cities. And, and that was largely because NEC and Wellington City Council, which is where we're based in Wellington, um, had signed a memorandum of understanding that was going to allow NEC to work with the city without having to sort of pursue commercial outcomes immediately. So we just got to trial stuff. And I know you had Julia Hamilton on a few weeks back and, and Julia was, um, part of, part of the team on the WCC side of things who were kind of taking, coming to us and, and talking to us about the problems and the things they were trying to resolve. And what we were doing is rather than sort of trying to pitch a technology was instead looking to see how the sort of portfolio of available technologies could be applied to it. And that's how we started sort of building smart cities. And, and it was sufficiently early in the stage then the idea of what, you know, smart cities were still pretty burgeoning. Um, so we spent quite a long time. We traipsed off around the world and had a look at a few different places, went to the Barcelona smart cities conference and, and, kind of got a feel for what the landscape was then and then came back and then started pitching some projects at WCC and it, it sort of went from there. Um, and to give you an idea of the sort of success of that, three years ago there was just myself and Tim and Tim was doing sort of the sales and relationship stuff and I was kind of hacking away at bits of hardware and, and looking at all the various different options that are out there in terms of doing some of this smart stuff. Uh, and now that team's got 30 people in it. Um, no. I should point out at this stage that I, I am no longer fully employed by NEC. Uh, I'm now a consultant. Uh, that happened quite recently. Um, and it's largely because I have sort of aspirations and interests outside of that sort of area that I want to pursue, but I'm still sort of working with those guys. Yeah, cool. Well, I think you've given us a really great overview of your interests, passions, and some of the technologies you're interested in. So let's jump straight into talking about some of the projects and things you're currently working on. Sure. Um, so, it, I mean, in terms of um, 
projects, uh, obviously because I've transitioned to consultancy, there's sort of a few, quite a few things I've got in the pipe that I can't talk about in, in great depth. Um, yeah. I'm working with a few companies in terms of building new IoT products. Um, they're normally things that are not sort of like a, they're, they're more of an innovation and R&D product, product than they are sort of a commercial, you know, just a kind of commodity approach. So they're normally using some sort of new sensor or a new uh, means of processing data or some sort of different sort of uh, backhaul and, and networking capability. Um, I've also done a lot with um, VR and building 3D city models. One of the big projects that I sort of was spearheaded and, and kind of encouraged the business to pursue while I was working for NEC was building this virtual 3D city, city model. I'm not sure if you've come across it. There's been quite a lot of press about it, um, largely in New Zealand. Maybe it hasn't got across the pond. Um, but um, well, that, that, that's been around effectively try, finding ways of putting the information that smart city infrastructure produces and so if that's sensing systems that can be about sort of lots of different sort of inputs from the, the street so that might be air quality or it might be the movement of people or vehicles or whatever and putting that into a framework and context which makes it very easy for people to understand what's going on and what we discovered in sort of the early stages of our work was that trying to get all that information onto a 2d map on a screen presented a lot of issues and and one of the ways to avoid that is by using three-dimensional models of the city that you can navigate and interact with in a much more intuitive way and, and fundamentally you understand understand much more intuitively because we think think about things in three dimensions and then using that as the underlying context in which we then sort of put uh, information. So that might be just showing what the where the sensors are physically in the space, but it can also remember in taking the information that those sensors produce and then visualizing it in a way that's very understandable and then doing that across time as well. So making it a temporal. So, you know, some people talk about these things as 4D models because of the time domain. Um, so, yeah, that that's kind of some of the things I'm working on at the moment. Um, I'm... We've got a couple of sort of sideline projects happening at the moment relating to AI. Um, so I'm very interested in how machine learning can be used to help cities get better at doing some of the things that they do at the moment. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's, there's quite a few sort of areas relating to, to that, uh, that that are sort of being chipped away at. And um, kind of on a related note, I think something that's going to start – you're going to start seeing appear in the next few years is sort of simulation systems that are going to allow cities to trial things that would be impractical in the real world because of a whole bunch of sort of constraints or political issues or just the risk of failure within a simulated environment that still gives them a pretty good degree of sort of understanding as to what the outcomes are. Um, that'll largely be agent-based simulation so that um, you, you gain down to the point where you're sort of simulating individuals and their behavior, but then doing that on a very large level. So tens and thousands of those agents all acting simultaneously within an area. Um, so that's what I answer that question. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've got a lot of technology sort of interests as well that sort of uh, are kind of more, more broad than that, if you want to hear some of those. But um, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Dive into some of the technologies for sure. Sure. Um, there's a. There's there's quite a lot of stuff happening out there, as you know, with autonomous vehicles and so on. And and I, w I won't talk about AVs because I know you've had a, quite a few people discuss those in the past. One of the things that has become very rapidly and quickly commoditized as a result of autonomous vehicles is this stuff called LiDAR. So that's a, a light-based sensor. So it uses a laser and bounces 
the laser off things and then it can sort of understand how far away that thing is from the the, the, the thing that's projected the laser. It does that very, very fast across a very large area and what you get at the end of that is basically a 3D map of the surrounding. Now, that's something that the cars need in order to know what's around them, but I think that we'll see that that technology, as it becomes commoditized, can be used for lots of other things as well. So that'll be potentially attached to drones so you can go off and do very frequent spatial capture, understand the sort of the the uh, uh, the state of a, a city in terms of its space, you know, uh, but also quite practically in terms of being able to look at the movement of people and look at the movement of vehicles and so on in a way that previously was impractical and is and is hard with cameras, with surveillance cameras. So I think that's going to be a, an area that's, that's going to pick up over the next few years. Um, I think audio is also another area that's really not being explored at the moment. So uh, the advent of the smart home devices like the Alexa and the Google Home and the Amazon, sorry, sorry, not the Amazon, the, uh, there's an iPhone, there's an Apple one as well, I forget the name of, um, all of those things uh, are designed to be able to listen for the the sound of the human voice and to be able to differentiate that from other sounds. Uh, and they use kind of arrays of microphones. And once again, because those things are becoming commoditized because of the sort of the uh, that uh, that kind of market drives that sort of tens and thousands, hundreds of thousands of devices being produced, that kind of technology has suddenly become available. And I think they will better use it in cities um now that might not necessarily be used to listen to people but certainly in terms of if you think about like the the uh audible state of the city if you stand on a street and close your eyes and listen you can hear a lot of things that tell you something about that street you know the vehicles going past are people happy are you hearing kids playing all those things tell you something about the state um and i think that you'll start to see that that kind of sensing technology will appear in cities to just to just give this new data. It's all about sort of where you can acquire new high density and useful data. Um, obviously, there's some privacy issues with that. You know, you don't want to be recording everyone's conversation. So I think that then means that you need to do edge processing. So you need to be taking that information, processing it at the sensor, and then just sending back metadata rather than sending back big sort of lumps of recorded information. Um, and uh, yeah, so I could go on, but I'm conscious of time. So if you, uh, is that sufficient? Yeah, yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I think um, it, it, yeah, the audio thing really, I haven't thought about that a lot. Um, obviously, yeah, you've got your Google Play and, you know, um, Echo and whatever else. Yeah. But to think about that on a city sense, I'm even thinking, you know, uh, out in the out in the bush, you know, when we're, when we're looking for, uh, you know, an endangered species or maybe a bird or something that we've yeah. never, we haven't heard for a long time, like having a sensor out there so you don't have to send a human out there that could, you know, that sensor could be hanging out there for a long time. And then I'm going, oh, yep, yep, they are still around and we heard this many in this amount of time and whatever else. So and Absolutely. Now, it's funny you should mention that uh, because we actually did a project doing just that. Oh, okay. Awesome. Um, so uh, I convinced our biz, uh, uh, convinced NEC to hire a couple of machine learning graduates uh, about a year and a half ago now. Um, and this was kind of before people had the sort of confidence that AI was going to be as disruptive as it's likely to be back then. So it was a bit of a hard push. But I kind of had a fairly strong feeling that it was going to happen. And, and one of the projects that I got these guys to work on, because we just didn't have the density of data from the city to be able to sort of apply that to to the kind of smart city approach. So Something we, we did work out is that it, just like Australia, New, New Zealand's got some very uh, um, unique native um, sort of species, uh, particularly birds. 
you know, the, the Kiwi is, you know, the iconic bird of New Zealand and um, uh, is endangered. And, and a lot of that's because of invasive species, cats and, and weasels and rats and so on, sort of uh, either sort of directly, prey, you know, treating them as prey or, or disrupting their habitats. So there's continuous work in New Zealand trying to get those uh, those those bird species to survive. And that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of releasing going on. There's a lot of pest management going on. But one of the things that's very problematic is to know whether or not you've had a positive effect on that by the, the sort of approaches they're taking. So we worked with um, some sensor data that had already been picked up by a university, uh, a PhD uh, sort of um, students, basically, um, who's doing their PhD at, at Vic Uni, who'd already captured a lot of uh, audio data from the, from the bush. And we applied TensorFlow, which is Google's sort of open source machine learning um, platform to that to see if we could find a way of getting it to identify the specific native bird calls that were of interest for this particular PhD student. So there was a, three specific birds that he was interested in hearing. And that was very successful. We found that as long as we had good tag data, we could do that. And so exactly what you're saying there in terms of that, that approach to being able to know whether or not you've heard that bird is quite practical. Um, it was quite new because we'd found that most of the time with TensorFlow and, in fact, with most of the machine learning stuff, there's a lot of focus on imagery and not so much on audio. So that was kind of a like proper sort of new R&D project we got to do that was very exciting, got a lot of press, not unsurprisingly. Yeah, cool. No, and I imagine, like, you know, the, the data files would be much smaller than, say, a video file. So it's much yes. more Right. Yes, yeah. it's correct. I mean, there's, there's still a problem with doing things out in the field. A lot of the a lot of what we learned from doing smart cities stuff is is that things that work on the bench don't necessarily work out in the field when you're trying to commoditize them. We, sorry, we're trying to productionize them. So having a you know a reliable power source is a luxury you often don't have out in the bush. You know, so you maybe you can do energy harvesting, but there's lots of constraints to that. The batteries only last so long, and so, so on and so forth. As soon as you need to do any kind of sophisticated processing, the energy consumption goes straight up. So managing energy budgets is a really big thing for, for IoT, um, and it's one of those things that a lot of the time people just will, because they don't recognize that issue, they don't consider it when they're planning and working out what they can and can't do. And so that's one of the big learnings we took from that is that there's a lot of devil in the detail that means is that a, a successful trial doesn't mean a successful product yeah definitely yeah cool uh, well let's talk a little bit about new zealand and where do you think um new zealand kind of ranks when it comes to smart cities um i think it's doing pretty well uh there's a lot of things that make it a good place to do smart cities we found with wellington in particular the the city council itself is very open to the kind of approaches we took um when there's a sort of saying about Wellington, which is that it, you, no one lives here by accident, and sort of that sort of referring to the fact that it's you know it's in the bottom end of the world. Um, New Zealand is is one of those places that a lot of people come on holiday, but you know settling here is sort of a sort of different thing, and you need to be sort of happy to accept uh, the, the 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 lifestyle here, which is a great one, um, but it's definitely not a bustling metropolis like sort of London or Sydney or whatever. Um, but it does present. Uh, there is a, a, I think it's pretty liberal, so it's, it's, and it's pretty progressive, and there's some very interesting political policy stuff that does make it pretty good for this sort of stuff, particularly the open data policies in New Zealand, which are great. You know, they're very progressive, and, you know, pretty much any bit of data that is collected by the city that doesn't have a privacy issue is something that the city, if practical, will make available in an open portal. Um, 
And I found that in doing some Aussie sort of work that that wasn't necessarily the case in Australia and it seemed to be much more a state-by-state basis. So, for instance, trying to get sort of aerial imagery or um, any kind of geo um, data um, in Australia was much, much harder than I'd ever experienced in New Zealand. Um, and it's just because there's actually just a government level policy that, that means that if a, if a city council gathers that stuff, unless they've got a good reason not to release it, then they'll release it. Um, so that, that's good. Um, the other thing about New Zealand is that it's a, you know, a developed Western country in terms of sort of all of those things that you'd measure, measure those things by. But there's only four million people and in the cities, you know, the biggest cities, you know, million and a half people. So, They've got all the features and, and traits and characteristics and problems of big cities, but they're small. So they're small enough to be able to actually roll something out. So to do something that would be prohibitively expensive and difficult in a, in a big city is actually quite practical in New Zealand cities, uh, and particularly in Wellington because Wellington's quite dense and compressed because of the topography. It sort of sits between a, sits in sort of a valley. So everything's kind of rolled down the hills into the center. So the C, the CBDs small, but dense. Um, so that's pretty useful. And so it, it, in that respect, I kind of refer to New Zealand as a good Petri dish for these sorts of things. It's a good place to do tests. And in fact, that's not, you know, it's a new idea. McDonald's regularly roll out new menu choices and stuff in New Zealand before they do anywhere else in the world. Yeah, interesting. Um, and ditto with Facebook as well. In fact, Facebook released new new features here before they do it in other places. And and it's just because there's, you know, culturally it's very similar to the UK and Europe and so on and so forth. It's just small enough to be able to do it. Um, so we're in a pretty good state there. There's still a lot of things that it's 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 a bit far behind with. Um, on a government level, there's not the same degree of um, support for smart cities initiatives that we're seeing in Aussie. You know, the stuff that Smart City Council is sort of working on and, and you know, the, the the rounds of investment that the cities are getting to leverage have happened to some degree here, but certainly they're not the same scale. Yeah, okay. um, there's also some concerning stuff in terms of the government support of certain technology. Like there's no policy in place at the moment in terms of AI investment in New Zealand. Um, and that's very much something that needs to change pretty soon because currently – even the academic communities are really not there's you know there's no major you can do in AI in New Zealand at the moment, which to me seems bananas and I was incredibly surprised that the, the universities weren't sort of more onto that but it's a little bit because on a government level it's not being pushed um, hopefully that'll change pretty soon there was a big report that just came out recently um, but hopefully will stimulate change there and so you know there's a few things that there's no guiding principles really out there in terms of what smart cities should do I don't think the cities themselves and you know quite often I'm talking about city things that you might you know uh, areas that might be considered a suburb in other places in the world um, are, are not um, necessarily given much good advice in terms of central government, in terms of that stuff, to, to the best of my knowledge anyway. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's goods, goods and bads. I think if we could solve some of those problems with, with you know, high-level policy, then it's going to be a very, very good place to do this stuff. Okay, that was part one. Check out episode 28 for the second installment where we'll finish this conversation. It's the Smart City Podcast. Whoa. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart City Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes can be found at thesmartcitypodcast.com. If you have any questions or comments for me or any of my guests, connect with me via email, zoe at thesmartcitypodcast.com or via the socials. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at smartcitypod. As always, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it.
City Podcast is what you're looking for.